This is What's Ahead, and I'm Steve Forbes. In a moment, you'll hear from Matt Ridley, also known as Viscount Ridley in Britain, and he's an unusual individual. He wrote a book called The Rational Optimist, and he makes the case that for all the problems in the world, we're far better off than we've ever been in human history, and despite the violence we see in this country and in other parts of the world, global violence is actually at, can you believe this, at an all-time low. As people engage more in commerce, they engage less in fighting. News being what it is, we know all about the bad things. But he points out that 137,000 people a day climb out of dire poverty, that the greenage in the world is actually increasing, not decreasing. So you'll find him very stimulating. But first, when I look at the week ahead, here's what to expect. There'll be the weekly petroleum status report coming out next week. Oil has taken a real hit. Worries about the declining global economy, declining economic activity means less need for oil. So people will be looking at what are the inventories there. Then we'll have the monthly sales numbers for retail and food services. Consumers were the big boost for the economy in the second quarter. Will they, are they continuing to buy? And overseas, big things. Hong Kong, what's going to happen there? Can a Tiananmen Square be avoided? Beijing wants that, which is why it's given the green light to the Hong Kong police. You do the dirty work. We don't want to send in our troops, but watch that situation. Iran, the sanctions, especially financial sanctions, are biting. Iran is going to be stepping up. It's trying to seize ships, trying to force a confrontation and force the U.S. to back down. It's not going to work. North Korea been engaging in missile tests. They may do another one in the next week or two. Again, trying to force the U.S. hand in easing sanctions. On the trade front, which has been roiling the markets, that will continue. Can we get a deal with China? Can we get the new NAFTA through Congress? Will the administration cave into protectionists and put tariffs on autos and auto part imports later this year? And another thing to look at is Japan and South Korea both critical allies of the United States, but Japan has been engaging in U.S.-like trade pressures on South Korea. Not good given the enmity between those two countries. We all know Japan conquered Korea decades ago and were not very nice colonial masters. So a lot of bitterness still remains. We're going to have to work hard to keep those two critical countries on our side and not let them get at each other's throats. Well, thank you very much, Matt, for joining us. We live in a world riddled with pessimism, climate, robots, artificial intelligence putting us all out of work, soil depletion, water shortages, poverty, growing income inequality, wars, riots, species extinction, overpopulation, and if your favorite football team is losing, you can include that as well. So, uh, it is, by the way, in my case. <laughs> oh, what a grim civilization we live in. But uh, you make the case that actually, unbeknownst to us, uh, the news is good. So let's start with the good news. Poverty. Poverty is the single biggest uh, change in human uh, condition over the last 50 years is the, is the defeat of poverty. I mean, when I was born, I'm around 60 years old, when I was born, uh, around two-thirds to three-quarters of the world lived in extreme poverty. 
And today that number is down to about 9%. That's a truly extraordinary change. It's never happened in human history before. Uh, it's, if anything, accelerating. Um, and almost nobody knows about it. At this rate, we've been lifting people out of extreme poverty at the rate of about 137,000 people a day. And yet it's never really appeared in a newspaper headline in that form. Now, in terms of uh, food, uh, give us the statistics about land use and the amount of food we're growing on less land over the last 50 years. Yes, I think this is one of the most remarkable statistics. It's been worked out by Jesse Orzabel of Rockefeller University that uh, compared with around 50 years ago, we're using 68% less land to produce a given quantity of food. So that's averaged over all crops. Um, it's an index of how much we've improved uh, the productivity of our farmland. And when you think about it, it's uh, a crucial uh, contribution to saving the planet, to saving the rainforest. So this phenomenon of land sparing, the increase in the yields of agriculture has not only fed the world and made famine history for the most part, except where politicians cause it, but it's also uh, saved the rainforest. Closely related to that is the remarkable expansion of green vegetation. Yes, this is a really intriguing one. I enjoy pointing this out, partly because it annoys people that I even refer to it at all. Um, uh, it's, it's a sort of dirty little secret of the, uh, of the in, environmental uh, science uh, area that, that they've discovered a very strong signal of increasing green vegetation on the planet. It's like creating an extra green continent the size of the mainland United States. Um, so three quarters of the cause of the greening over the last 33 years uh, according to analysis by scientists at NASA and Beijing University, uh, is the extra carbon dioxide in the air as a result of the burning of fossil fuels. Which gets to something that uh, has uh, uh, perhaps put your life in jeopardy when you say, at least for now, uh, climate change is helping more than hurting. Do we dare those, utter those words? I've said that, and as you say, it does not go down well. It, it, it makes me um, very unpopular. Um, it, it actually, even the climatic effects of uh, warming are generally beneficial up until about one and a half or two degrees centigrade, according to all the models that, that are used by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Science and all the others. So, for example, more people die in winter than summer, even in quite hot countries. Um, and warming generally results in higher crop yields, uh, et cetera, et cetera. It tends to result in slightly higher rainfall and therefore less drought. Now, there will come a point, if the warming is fast enough and big enough, where it will do more harm than good. But that, that point is probably 60 years away still. And yet we're taking measures to stop climate change, such as denying coal-fired power stations to people in developing countries so they can have electricity grids, um, uh, which would increase their livelihoods by uh, preventing them dying of indoor air pollution because they cook over wood and things like that. We're actually doing real harm to people in the name of defeating this. And we're hurting poor people particularly. That's the thing that's problematic about this. Right. Now, another good piece of news is longevity. Let's first start with uh, infant mortality. What's happened to that in the last uh, 15, 20 years around the world? It's truly remarkable what's happening to infant mortality. It's the 
biggest measure of misery I can think of having to bury a child. It's increasingly a rare experience. Africa lagged behind other continents in this respect in the 1990s. That was largely because of the HIV epidemic. As that has come under control, so Africa's child mortality has started to accelerate downwards. I mean, you know, most African countries now have a child mortality rate per thousand live, live births, um, something similar to what a country like the UK or the US had 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, and then uh, overall longevity has gone up remarkably in recent years, has it not? Yes, it has. And the, the, the statistic I like to use, and I think it's still accurate, it was accurate a couple of years ago anyway, is that uh, average global life expectancy is increasing at the rate of five hours per day. The interesting thing is, however, and I looked into this, although many more people are reaching 80, many more people are reaching 90, more people are reaching 100, the number of people reaching 110 is changing very little. In other words, we're hitting some kind of human sell-by date um, at which the, the body just does pack up. So it's as if we're, we're beginning to glimpse the limit of how far we can push uh, longevity without serious biotechnological intervention. Something to, to study. Now, in terms of uh, the weather, deaths from storms or deaths from droughts, what's happened to that in the last hundred years? Well, this is remarkable. If you look at the statistics, um, your probability of dying as a result of a drought, flood, or storm is about 98% lower today, globally, than it was in the 1920s. These are figures from Indo Gokhani, a, a scientist who's looked this up. Our shelter, our communication, our transport, our forecasts have got better and better. So we're able to protect people against these terrible natural uh, phenomena. The difference is really in development, whether you survive these kind of, of uh, natural disasters. Now, concerns about extinction. Uh, you make the point about where you have innovation, animals do better. Tell us about lions, wolves, and tigers. <laughs> yes. Wolves are increasing all around the world. Lions are decreasing. And tigers are roughly holding their own. Why is that? What's the difference between these three super predators? And the answer is that wolves live in rich countries. Lions live in poor countries. And tigers live in middle-income countries, um, places like India and Southeast Asia. Wildlife is in more trouble in the poor world than it is in the rich world. Why? Because when people are really poor, they actually exploit wildlife. They can't afford not to. Um, when people get richer, they start to value it, and they also start to move to cities and to be able to afford farmed food and things like that. So they don't rely on what's called bushmeat and things like that. So uh, actually getting Africans wealthy will take the pressure off their wildlife. Um, uh, now, you've got to do more than that. You've got to set up national parks and have conservation measures and things like that uh, as well. Now, the daily news, we read about violence, we read about warfare, but you make the case, statistically, that deaths from violence and warfare actually are in a long-term decline. The trend is more down. Despite brief ups, the trend has been down. Explain. I think there's only about 10 or 11 wars going on in the world at the moment. 
that's a new low. <laughs> 20 years ago, it was an average of 30. Um, the American hemisphere, I think it's right to say, has no wars at all now since a ceasefire was signed in Colombia. Um, that's probably never happened before because chronic warfare was a part of the lives of of um, uh, Native American people in the Amazon and elsewhere throughout history. Uh, and your probability of being killed in a war has probably never been lower uh, for the average human being. Now, that may not be much comfort if you've lived in Syria in the last five years, I, I admit. Um, and there's still uh, an awful lot too much violence. Um, but, uh, it, you know, the trends are in the right direction. And whatever we've been doing, we've been doing it right. You know, there's there's something about the way we value relationships in, in a free exchanging world. I mean, the, the, Steve Pinker goes into this and he decides that the, the evidence supports the idea that the more capitalist, the more uh, free market economies are, the less likely they are to go to war with each other. There's quite strong evidence in that direction. So commerce is actually good for peace. So you may not love your neighbor, but you sure want to sell to your neighbor. Well, exactly. There's not much point in killing him if you want him to buy your stuff. Now, innovation, unemployment, always a fear out there that uh, we're all going to be made redundant. Actually, you say it's just the opposite. It's turned out that what technology does is it augments the productivity of individual people, and that makes them wealthier, which enables them to employ other people doing other things. And so in new professions are invented supplying the needs of these people. Uh, in the early 1960s, there was a report to President Johnson saying computers are going to start transforming uh, the workplace. Uh, production, line is getting, uh, production lines are getting automated all the time. This is going to be a disaster. We are facing... Uh, terrible unemployment in the future, uh, and we need to get ready for this and to have policies to deal with it. Well, it didn't turn out like that. The, the following 50 years saw more and more jobs being created, a lot of them jobs that didn't even exist in the uh, 1960s. I mean, software engineers, uh, but also pet grooming salons. I don't suppose there were so many of those around 50 or 60 years ago. You know, so you can see how new professions get developed to deal with it. Or even One dog walkers in New York. Dog walkers, very good example. I bet there were no dog walkers in 1960, even in New York. Um, <laughs> one of the things that's happening now is that people are saying, ah, oh, yes, but artificial intelligence is different. This time is different. And I fail to understand why it's different. But I think I've nailed down what the difference is this time. And that is that for the first time, it's people like us it's educated, wealthy people who are under threat. <laughs> and that's why the educated, wealthy people are so worried. Journalists, for the first time, are starting to see their livelihoods threatened with automation, and they don't like it one bit. We'll get to innovation in a moment, but key to it all is trade. Yet their belief persists uh, that uh, trade is zero-sum, that uh, trade is bad, trade destroys. We're certainly getting that in the U.S. these days. You certainly are. And it's, a, it's an old, old psychological flaw that we human beings have, is that we, we really struggle with the idea that, that, that it's mutually beneficial to trade. And yet when you think about it, it's kind of obvious. I mean, if I get better at making food and you get better at making shelter and we both 
supply each other with those two, then we're both better off. Uh, specialization and exchange is, is, is the root of this sort of perpetual motion machine we've developed for enriching human beings uh, because people get more and more specialized in what they produce uh, so that they can be more and more diversified in what they consume. Um, you know, what's, what could be more cooperative than the trading arrangements between your country and mine where, um, uh, you know, there's all sorts of goods that we supply to you. There's all sorts of goods that you supply to us, all sorts of services. It's a, it's a gigantic collaboration. It's a collective enterprise. So call it voluntary collectivism? Yes. Well, the collectivism has a bad bad name, certainly but I think that's right. If you, if you use the word voluntary, it helps get the point across. And I think, you know, there's an awful lot of young people who've never heard this point. You know, the most cooperative and collaborative things they do are commercial. They're not philanthropic. I mean, everyone does charitable acts as well. But, you know, as Adam Smith famously said, you know, it is not from the goodwill of the baker and the butcher that we get our bread. It's because it's in his interest to supply it. But he's doing us a favor and we're doing him a favor by, by trading with him. This gets to uh, innovation. And innovation is how we move ahead. But it's messy. It's unplanned. It's trial and error. Walk us through that, that uh, out of this seemingly messy process is how we uh, move ahead, find out what works and what doesn't work. Well, the way we tell stories about innovation is that we tend to talk about a hero who had a eureka moment. Uh, people like Edison, you know, he went through 10,000 different types of material trying to find the best filament for a lamp. And we tend to attribute too much to brilliant individuals changing the world, as opposed to seeing it as an inevitable, inexorable and evolutionary process that comes about because each technology makes possible the next step in technology. So just back to the light bulb for a second. Um, uh, Robert Friedel reckons that there are 21 different people who deserve credit for inventing the light bulb independently. In science, too, this phenomenon of simultaneous invention, you know, there are sort of five different inventors of the thermometer around the same time. Um, and what that seems to imply is that there's something inevitable. You know, it, it's very unlikely that if Sergey Brin had never met Larry Page, we would not have good search engines by now. <laughs> you know, there's an inevitability. Once you've invented the Internet, search engines are going to get get good. People are going to invent them. I'm kind of struggling with this to try and understand innovation as this inevitable but unpredictable process. Uh, we think science, that makes invention possible, but uh, you make the case that it's practical people, people tinkering, and that leads to the science. Walk us through that. Uh, you know, technologies in the, in the um, textile industries owed almost nothing to science. And the people who made the breakthroughs, people like Thomas Newcomen in the case of steam, you know, were virtually illiterate um, blacksmiths who were, tink who were good at tinkering with machines. They weren't uh, brilliant people who, who understood the physics. And then you come to something like the mobile phone uh, and you say, you know, did that come out of a university? No way. It came out of industry. Um, the, the, the Internet, uh, a lot of it is basically developed by practical people trying to improve uh, ways of communicating over computers. Um, 
it doesn't come out of computer science departments of, of universities very much. Some of it does, inevitably. I mean, it, it is a two-way street. This. You, you know, science can lead to technology. There's no question about it. But just as often, technology leads to science. Now, one of the dangers to innovation is the threat to what you call permissionless innovation. People just doing things and discovering things. But in the European Union and elsewhere, uh, you almost have to get permission to do these experiments. Um, Peter Thiel makes the point these days that uh, if we innovate in the digital world, on the whole, it's permissionless. You don't have to get anyone's permission to write new software, to develop new social media, etc. That's beginning to change, but that's the way. And that's why a lot of innovation has been digital, whereas it's if you want to invent a new material uh, or um, do something with atoms, you quite often run up against regulation that is designed, well, ostensibly it's designed to keep people safe. But actually a lot of the time it's there because people have lobbied to protect their own incumbent vested interests. Give us the story of uh, things like even the umbrella about vested <laughs> interests. <laughs> yes, uh, I mean, you know, it's a, it's a horrifying fact, but the, the drivers of handsome cabs in London in the 18th century, uh, you know, taxis basically, horse-drawn taxis, um, uh, lobbied for the banning of the umbrella on the grounds that more people would walk and fewer people would take cabs. Now, they probably invented some theory about umbrellas being dangerous because you couldn't see where you were going and you knocked people's eyes out in the street, all of which is partly true. Um, but, you know, this is, the, this is just a, a classic example of how people organize to prevent innovation because it's a threat to their livelihood in an incumbent industry. And we see all sorts of examples uh, of that today. I mean, in the United States, uh, there was a ban on margarine in a lot of states because the dairy industry had lobbied for this. And this was by the 1940s. Um, it's long since gone. But, you know, uh, there's a huge resistance to the electronic cigarette at the moment. Uh, funnily enough, it's not really coming from tobacco companies who realize the writing's on the wall and they've got to join this technology rather than beat it. But a lot of it's coming from the pharmaceutical industry because they make prescribed quit smoking aids and they and you know they they see their market being cannibalized by these threatening products etc now barriers to innovation uh, we mentioned special interests but you also talk about bureaucracy and superstition well when people say to me you're optimistic about the world what worries you you must be worried about something and my standard answer is bureaucracy and superstition because if you look at what brought civilizations down in the past, whether it was the Roman Empire, the Arab civilization, or the Chinese civilization, it was some combination of bureaucracy and superstition. Uh, too many petty officials telling people what they couldn't do, on the one hand, and too many priests uh, telling people uh, to um, stick to a particular ideological line and not be free thinking enough. And I think that combination is what will threaten our civilization. Indeed, what is threatening it, uh, if you like, today. Uh, and you see some combination of those 
I mean, if you like, you could say I'm talking about the European Union when I talk about bureaucracy and I'm talking about Islamic fundamentalism when I talk about superstition. But it's not just those two. Some of the environmental movement is, is, is effectively a form of superstition, etc. Now, can we stay ahead of those threats um, with our open-minded, free exchange of ideas that leads to innovation? I think we can. Two quick examples. One is occupational licensing, which is run amok in this country. But you also make the point that many multinational corporations are becoming uh, inadvertently or advertently hostile to uh, innovation, permissionless innovation. Start with the occupational licensing. Yeah. Um, you know, if you can get the government to say that only people who've gone through a long course can become a lawyer or a hairdresser, then the price you can charge as a hairdresser is, or a lawyer is going to go up. Um, and this, of course, we see happening all over the place, that, 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 that on the whole, these organizations lobby for barriers to entry to their profession and therefore effectively are lobbying to be a cartel that can fix its own prices to some degree. Um, so I think that's quite a widespread phenomenon. I think in some ways it's worse in the US than in uh, Europe at the moment. Um, but it is still a problem. Well, it's a problem in all, all sorts of places. Uh, what was the other example you want? You were, uh, multinationals. Uh, multinationals. Yeah, Frederick Erickson and Bjorn Weigel have written a book called The Innovation Illusion, which makes the point that an awful lot of the economy now consists of big multinational corporations. And big multinational corporations aren't very good at innovating and in fact, they tend to divert resources. They suck up investment from the, from the uh, community and they tend to divert it into um, rather anti-innovative ways of, of, of being businesses, whether it's rent-seeking, uh, exploiting their monopolies, or even just subtler things like um, uh, uh, buying up innovative small companies and letting them die within their new organizations. And this is a real problem, I think. Uh, and and they, make, they, make, they, they make the case that we think we, we live in a time of a ferment of innovation, lots of new startups everywhere. But actually, if you look around the world, that's not necessarily true. There's quite a lot of stagnation going on uh, in wealthy countries, you know, countries like Japan are struggling to grow, a lot of European countries. Um, uh, and, and quite a lot of these countries are dominated by big conglomerate organizations that, that buy up small competitors and extinguish them. Um, or that um, prevent new entrants getting into markets to threaten them. Now, an organization like Amazon is both big and dominant and innovative at the moment. But 20 years down the line, do you think Amazon will be a force for innovation or will it be a force suppressing innovation? I don't know, but you can easily imagine uh, it going the wrong way. Overall, uh, you're still optimistic about the future? I remain defiantly optimistic, um, and I love to quote uh, Thomas Babington Macaulay, the historian from the 1830s, who said, um, on what principle is it with, that with nothing but uh, improvement behind us, we're to expect nothing but deterioration before us. Uh, so people have always been more pessimistic about the future than they have been about the past. That's not to say nothing's going to go wrong. There will be disasters in this century. And by the way, one of the areas where we're probably too optimistic is asset prices during bubbles. <laughs> you would know more about that than me. You know, I'm not saying nothing's going to go wrong.
but I'm willing to bet that in 100 years' time, the human race is going to be a lot better off than it is today. So as you say, the golden age is not in the past. The golden age is in the future. I think so. Matt, thank you so much for your time. Very much appreciated. Thank you, Steve, very much for having me on the show. I really enjoyed that. And now for my reads of the week. This one, you might say, is not a laughing matter. It's a piece called Tickle Therapy Could Help Slow Aging. Now, this says tickling with a small electrical current appears to rebalance the autonomic nervous system. Now, what is that nervous system? It's the parts of our bodies where we don't have to think about doing things, like the heartbeats, breathing, and the like. So, for people over 55, University of Leeds in Britain says this may help us live longer. I hope we don't end up thinking of this as a bad joke, but at my age, I'll take anything I can. You can find this piece on eurekaalert.org. Now, let me spell that out for you. It's E-U-R-E-K-A-L-E-R-T. Not two A's, but one A. Eurekaalert.org. The next article, much more serious. It's entitled, The Dumbest Concept Ever Just Might Win Wars for the United States. It's written by an expert called Jim Lacey. It can be found on waronTheRocks.com. Let me say that again, waronTheRocks.com. What this article talks about is a developing concept between the Marines and the Navy that envisions the Marine Corps seizing and establishing a persistent presence on key islands and choke points in the Pacific Ocean as a way of bottling up the growing menace of the Chinese Navy. Now, the idea has been ridiculed by those who remember World War II, where Japan tried that kind of strategy and failed miserably. But Lacey, who is a skeptic, says this one is something different. With these long-range weapons that you can put on these islands, enemy ships and aircraft will find it difficult or impossible to operate. Given the downsizing of our Navy, this kind of new strategic thinking is going to be critical. Let me say the title again. The Dumbest Concept Ever Just Might Win Wars by Jim Lacey on waronTheRocks.com. Thanks for listening to What's Ahead. I'm Steve Forbes, looking forward to next week. And if you could rate, review, and subscribe to this show, we at Forbes sure would appreciate it.